0: Samuel chapter 31, the last chapter of the first book of Samuel. As we end the year, we end the book. It's kind of cool. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand so we can get one into your hands. First Samuel chapter 31, beginning in verse 1. Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle went heavily against Saul, and the archers hit him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and pierce me through with it, otherwise these uncircumcised will come and pierce me through and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. So Saul took his sword and fell on it. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died with his three sons and his armor-bearer and all his men on that day together when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley with those who were beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned the cities and fled. Then the Philistines came and lived in them. It came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off his head and stripped off his weapons. And sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtaroth, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshon. Father, we open your word this morning to a tragedy,
1: and to a chapter that, uh, well, it's...
0: It's when we read and are ready to to, to just move on, uh, the end of a life, Father, that um, according to Scripture was not altogether such a good life. we considered Saul before the people's choice, Lord, and and we've seen what happens when the people are allowed to choose, and and so often we'll choose wrongly. We'll choose based on appearance, choose based on what looks strong or or tall or imposing as opposed to choosing, Lord, based on the heart. Father, we've learned a lot of things just from looking at Saul's life, but here at the end of his life in this study in the Scriptures, find some questions, Lord, and, and some confusion and just some curiosity about how this first king of Israel died. And I ask, Lord, as we ask every time we open the Scriptures, that You would open our eyes and would open our ears and speak into our hearts. As you would speak, Lord, the message you have for us today, and may your words ring true. May they bring about change and, and alter us in such a way that we are living more in your presence, more for you, more with you. And I pray your blessing on the fellowship this morning as we look into your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're at the end of 2007, and I wondered if we would be here to see it. I was even asked just last night, what do you think about the whole end time stuff? Do you really think that it's close? Do you think that it's near? And if you've spent any time here at the bridge, you probably know what my answer to that would be. I think it's very near. I think the signs of the times are very clear in the Bible is is very outspoken in terms of what to be looking for and being wide awake and being ready and being watchful for the coming of Jesus Christ. And there's still time in 2007. So I'm still banking on it. I'm not even going to say I'll see you next Sunday. Some might ask, Rick, do you really believe the coming of Christ is that imminent? And I, I really do. I really do. I choose to live there. Now, I'm not setting any dates. I'm not selling my house and moving up to the top of a mountain to be as close as possible to the rapture. But I do believe in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. As time wears on, what tends to happen is people get worn out thinking about the coming. And, and they begin to get busy with other things. And they begin to say, well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, you know, maybe we've got a little more time than we thought. And according to Jesus, that's dangerous thinking. To settle into the routine. He says, blessed is the the servant whose master finds him ready. Whose master finds him serving his house with an eye to the return of the master. And yes, I do believe Jesus is coming and that his coming is imminent. Paul wrote in Romans 13, verse 11. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us Than when we believed The night is almost gone And the day is near Now if Paul said that 2,000 years ago How much nearer are we in this moment Than he was in that moment When he said it is now the time to be awake I shared before that Paul would say I would choose to live no other way than to live ready and watchful and waiting for the coming and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's how to live your life. That's the way to live day in and day out. Listen, for better or for worse, whether this past year, 2007, was a good one for you, and for many it probably was, or it was a bad one for you, and for many it probably was, I want to remind you of where we're invited to stand on the precipice of tomorrow. As Paul wrote in Philippians 3.13, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, forgetting what lies behind. And that's important to understand because we can rest on our laurels. We can sit back on our accomplishments, our successes, our achievements. We can look at 2007, and if it was a good year, just say, man, I'm doing good. And pride can creep into that. On the other hand, we can look back at 2007, if it was a rough year, a difficult year, a a year of failure, a year of tragedy. We can look back and wallow in sorrow or, or guilt. We can struggle over the things we did that we wish we hadn't. And Paul says, no, 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 no. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. And this is the heart. This is the attitude that we are called to. Now, for this morning study, we come not just to the end of the year, but to the end of 1 Samuel and with with it the end of a sorry, sad, self-centered life. The life of Israel's first king, the people's choice, Saul. There is... More tragedy is Saul's death than the fact that he died. There is tragedy in that this man who had the mark of greatness, who had opportunity to truly do wonderful things in the name of the Lord, and as the first king of Israel, this man, Saul, really ended up a failure. And his life was not what many hoped it would be. Saul, the sorrowful king who it appears even committed suicide, and by the way, that would be a, a, an asthma. I mean, that would be a cursed thing to do. That was not something that was practiced in these early days of Israel. Far from it. In fact, that's why Saul said to his armor bearer, Will you kill me? Because for someone to kill themselves in the days of Israel, not good. Not good. But there is some discrepancy as to the person who actually took Saul's life. From verse 4, it appears that Saul did. But if you look ahead in the record of Second Samuel chapter 1, we get a different story. Look over there for a moment. Turn the page, 2 Samuel chapter 1 of verse 7. Story of a young man who comes to David to report on the death of Saul. And he says in verse 7, When he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I said, Here I am. And Saul said to me, Who are you? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Please stand beside me and kill me, for agony has seized me because my life still lingers in me. So I stood beside him and killed him. Because I knew that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown which was on his head and the bracelet which was on his arm. And I have brought them here to my Lord. See this little Malachi thought he was doing David a favor. Thought he would find himself in David's good graces by going ahead and taking Saul's life and bringing the crown crown and the bracelet to him. Well, then David took hold of his clothes and tore them. And so also did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the people of the Lord and the house of Israel, because they had fallen by the sword. Is this a contradiction? Not at all. It's an explanation. What we get in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel is a single verse saying that Saul killed himself. Verse 4 Saul took his sword and and fell on it What we're getting in 2 Samuel chapter 1 Is the further explanation of what actually happened The expounding of the truth This fills in what took place on Mount Gilboa Okay, so Rick, your interpretation would be then That the Amalekite was responsible for killing Saul Correct? Wrong My interpretation is this Neither Saul nor the Amalekite Were responsible for Saul's death Nor were the Philistines the Lord was. First Chronicles chapter 10 verse 13 says Saul died for his trespass which he committed against the Lord because of the word of the Lord which he did not keep and also because he asked counsel of a medium that is the witch of Endor we talked about her a couple of weeks ago making inquiry of it he did not inquire of the Lord therefore he the Lord he killed him and turned the kingdom to David the son of Jesse. Truly, Saul's life was in the hands of the Lord. Truly, as the Bible says, our days are numbered. And the Lord knows our last day. Saul had been warned twice by the prophet Samuel, once in life and once in ghostly death, that this day would come, that this day of his death was upon him. And now the day has come. And Saul and his sons and his soldiers are fighting the Philistines at Mount Gilboa. And as 1 Samuel chapter 31 tells us, the battle is not going well. Saul watches as each of his soldiers begin dying all over the mountain, all around him. They are going down. The Philistines are strong. And they are routing Israel. Saul watches as his own sons, even the great and valiant Jonathan, die in this ill-advised battle. And finally Saul himself is hit by a Philistine arrow. Sometimes we can miss the depth of the tragedy when we're just reading words on a page. When we're looking back at something of history, we didn't really know Saul. We didn't have a relationship with him. We didn't really know Jonathan. Oh, we were impressed by him. But he's just a figure from history. And so Jonathan's death to you, to me, not that big a deal. Not half as much as, as the death of sometimes video game characters are to those who play the games. I was talking with some friends last night about this that they went upstairs and I won't say this, who this is until second hour because they won't be here until second hour and then I can make fun of them to their face. But uh, they were talking about how they, the, the husband went upstairs and his daughter had tears in her eyes. And the wife said, just just, go, just go downstairs, it'll be okay. And he's like, what? Like so many of us husbands are. What, what, what's going on? What, you know? And he goes downstairs and his son came down. Also, tears in his eyes. And he said... Dad, we just lost. And he named this character from this game they were playing. You've got to be kidding.
1: (laughs) This is a cartoon character on a
0: tiny little screen who people got. It's unbelievable to me. I, I think the line between reality and fantasy is getting really, really blurry in our world today. But it's not even like that. We look at Saul and Jonathan we think, oh, they, you know, they, they went down. Hey, listen. Put yourself in Saul's shoes standing on Mount Gilboa as your life is coming apart all around you. As your sons are dying, put yourself in David's shoes as he gets word that this had happened. What did David do? All right, the kingdom is finally mine. Whew. Glad I waited. David fell apart. And David wept. Sometimes in the, in the analysis of Scripture and in Bible study, we can lose the passion of what was going on. And I believe the Lord would ask us to pause and consider the pain of this moment. And consider the heartache in Israel as men were dying right in left. It wasn't just Saul and his son Jonathan and his other two sons. It was the men of Israel. So there were wives and there were children whose daddy would not come home that night because they were dead on Mount Gilboa. There was pain throughout the land. This is an emotional, horrifying time. There were people asking, have we lost it all? Is Israel history now? Our king is dead. Our army routed. The Philistines are now living among us. Is it over? It's amazing to me that we often think it's over. Just before... The real king takes the throne. Just before David is crowned, just before the son of David steps in and says, no, it's not over, because I am king. It's an encouraging word not to give up, because just when we do, I believe the Lord is often about to act. But Saul, he's in this position. It's a painful place. He himself is hit by a Philistine arrow, and so he's got the arrow. I don't know if it's in his chest in his back, but he is, he is down on, on a knee, and he's, he's hurting physically. And he decides it's time to die, so he says to his armor-bearer, kill me, take me out. By the way, David could have been, should have been his armor-bearer. Had Saul not driven him out, David would have been the armor-bearer for Saul. It's interesting that David was protected from that. But Saul makes this choice. He, he decides it's time to die. And let me just make a side note here. The right to die can seem at the time such a noble thing. I'm choosing to die. Whether it's by suicide or, or euthanasia in our country, that's, that's that debate that continues to go on about who, who decides when I get to die. Who, who has that, that choice, that decision. My, uh, my parents-in-law... I watched Million Dollar Baby just the other night. I don't know if you remember that movie. If you saw that, I, I didn't see it, but I heard it's got a tragic ending. And it deals with euthanasia and someone taking another person's life. I, I thought it was funny, though, that the door between the houses open and, and in walks Bill. Usually it's Sharon. Sharon's kind of the Kramer in the house, if you've ever watched Seinfeld. The door flies open and in she comes, you know. But but this time it was Bill. The door opens and, and he comes walking in and it kind of literally storms across the room and I'm like dad's upset what's up and he goes have you ever seen Million Dollar Baby and I said no I haven't he goes that is the worst movie I've ever seen in my life I just wasted two and he was going off on Million Dollar Baby and it was cracking me up but death gang death is an ugly thing especially when it's ripped out of the hands of God now God had foreordained he knew this was going to happen The reality was, death is not Saul's choice. It wasn't the armor bearer's choice. It wasn't the Amalekite's choice. And the time of our death is not our choice. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes chapter three verse one, there's an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die. Now Saul thinks, as oftentimes people do, he thinks by committing suicide, with this Amalekite's help, he'll avoid certain abuses by the Philistines. It'll just be over. And he's dead wrong. The abuses come even though he's dead. As the Philistines come upon him, they lop off his head, strip off his weapons, and they UPS them throughout the land of the Philistines. How would you like that to be what happens to you after you die? Your head passed from place to place as people laugh and spit at it and scorn it. And they pin his body to a wall at a city that, by the way, is still there in Israel today, a city called Bethshan. And his body hung up on that wall, was likely used for target practice and stone throwing and... And all manner of dishonor in the hands of the Philistines. And so David's lament for Saul in the opening pages of Second Samuel couldn't have been more appropriate. He said, How the mighty have fallen, and the weapons of war have perished. Truly the mighty had fallen, right where pride and arrogance landed Saul. You know this familiar verse, Proverbs 16, 18, that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. It's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And that was Saul's problem. He knew if he fought the Philistines that he was going to die. He'd been told twice. How many times do you need to be told? If you go into this battle, you're going to die. He knew this. Samuel had prophesied it twice. And yet he still went into battle. Why? The glory... The spoils, the victory that might be before him if he could pull it off. Oh, it's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Saul fought anyway in spite of warning, and the mighty Saul took a great fall. By the way, speaking of great falls, something interesting about Beth Shan. if you go to Israel you can see this. It's the location of the largest archaeological dig ever discovered in the land of Israel. And you stand there at the, at the entrance to this, to this ancient city, this ancient find, this massive ruin of the Roman city called Scythopolis. It was one of the ten cities of the Decapolis. You can walk down Main Street where they have stood back up, these massive pillars on either side. You can walk on the actual ground that was there. You can see the, the ancient Roman bathhouse and how things function there and then the, the magnificence of the architecture and the wonder of the design of the city it was amazing and you can walk down and, and, and at the end of the street hang a right and go down into the shopping district where the stores would have been you can continue on around there's, there's a Roman Colosseum that's there there's a Roman amphitheater huge and, and glorious you can climb a hill above that winding up Come up to the top of it, where at one time a a pagan temple used to stand looking over the city, and you can look down and you can see all of bet Shan. I did this at our last visit. And as I stood up there looking down, I realized something. Still, in the same place that they were fallen were pillars and great stones that were wiped out in an earthquake in 363. And finally leveled by another earthquake In 749 You can see the broken columns The smashed streets down below And as you stand there You may think this very verse How the mighty have fallen Scythopolis was for the Romans One of their cookie cutter cities That they were placed all over To express the grandeur of Rome in the world The wonder, the splendor of this great people And yet today it's ruins How the mighty have fallen. All that to say, Saul at one point, the mighty king of Israel, is now grotesquely pinned to a wall headless at Bethshan. But the story concludes, and this is the part I really want you to see this morning, with three verses and a show of amazing tenderness. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul... All the valiant men rose and walked all night, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. And they came to Jabesh and burned them there, and they took their bones, and burned them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh, and fasted for seven days. The men of Jabesh Gilead did something unusual. Saul was already dead. His head was who knows where his body pinned to that wall and yet the men of Jabesh Gilead got up and all night long they, they made a walk into enemy territory to this city and there in the quiet probably early hours of dawn they, they took Saul's body off the wall along with Jonathan and the others they carried them back they burned them why would they burn them well they were probably so brutalized they were they were absolutely worthless that, I mean just everything well I guess they would be worthless just being beheaded but they were in bad shape they burned the bodies but carefully and tenderly they take and bury the bones under the tamarisk tree in honor to a life lived the life of Saul now we look at the life of Saul and say honor? I'm not really sure this man Saul deserves honor why would these men of Jabesh-Gilead, why would they do such a thing? Why would they risk their own lives just to show honor to this fallen king of Israel? And to understand this, we have to go back 40 years. Saul had just been crowned king, but the serpent king of the Ammonites, a man by the name of Nahash, was besieging the city of Jabesh-Gilead, of these men who risked their lives to get Saul's body down. Turning your Bibles back to 1 Samuel chapter 11. 1 Samuel chapter 11. Again, Saul had received his crown. There were people questioning whether or not he should be king. He wasn't even sure if he wanted to be king. And at this time, the king of the Ammonites, Nahash... Comes after Jabesh Gilead. It's on the outskirts of Israel. Verse 1 says Now Nahash the Ammonite came up. He besieged Jabesh Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us, and we will serve you. Now, Jabesh Gilead is east of the Jordan River. Nahash's name, by the way, means serpent. Serpent. We could call him the serpent king of the Ammonites. But Nahash verse 2, the Ammonites said this to them, said, I'll make with you, I'll make a covenant with you on this condition that I will gouge out the right eye of every one of you, thus I will make it a reproach on all Israel. So I'll, I'll make a peace treaty with you, but I'm going to gouge out all the right eyes of all your men. What, what's he doing? Well, he's gouging out the fighting eye. He is dishonoring or wants to dishonor the soldiers. Because to be a soldier in that day, your shield would be in the left hand. And your right eye would be the eye with which you peeked around as you were fighting in battle. To take out the right eye was to take out your ability to fight as a right-handed person in battle. Well, Verse 3, the elders of Jabesh said to him, Let us alone for seven days, that we may send messengers throughout the territory of Israel. Then if there is no one to deliver us, we will come out to you. Now, think: why would a serpent king like Nahash go for this? Okay, yeah, I'm going to give you a week and you go see if you can find all the help you can get and come back and fight me why would he allow that to take place I think it's because Nahash thought he knew something about Jabesh Gilead and about Israel but you have to go back even further to understand the history of the land and what was happening you may recall the story that closes the book of Judges chapters 19, 20 and 21 let me just recap it for you it's the story of a Levite. And this Levite is traveling with a concubine. And he stops overnight in the Benjaminite town of Gibeah And there the Levite's woman is raped and killed. The next morning he puts her on his donkey. He goes home. He carves up her dead body into 12 pieces. And he sends each of these 12 pieces out to the 12 tribes of Israel. Every tribe gets a piece of her body. It's a graphic and disgusting story. And Israel was horrified. So they go up to fight against the tribe of Benjamin, who has now decided to defend the men of Gibeon, who have done this horrendous act, raped and killed this, this concubine, this woman. And Israel ends up slaughtering all but 600 men of the tribe of Benjamin who flee. And when the battle's over and the dust settles, the men of Israel look at each other and they begin to weep and they realize what they've done. They are 600 men away from completely wiping out the entire inheritance of the tribe of Benjamin. The tribe is about done for And now they're trying to think What are we going to do How are we going to handle this We've got to save the tribe We've got to keep the tribe alive It's a twisted tale And so they come up with a plan They say we'll, We'll kill all the men of Jabesh Gilead That's what we'll do We'll wipe out Jabesh Gilead Because those men refused to come and fight with us Against Benjamin Now are you tracking how messed up this whole thing is? They didn't come fight with us against our own brothers and because they didn't fight we'll kill all their men and we'll take their virgin women and give them to the men of Benjamin
1: everything will be okay.
0: It's amazing. Why the bloody history lesson? Nahash would have known this. Nahash the serpent king of the Ammonites, would have realized the men of Jabesh Gilead the people of this city were probably not the most favored people among the cities of Israel. They were on the east side of the Jordan. The chances that anyone was going to come help the men of Jabesh Gilead and the people there were slim to none. And so Nahash says great, fine. You go ask for your help. You ask anyone you want. I'll give you seven days, sure. Because he knew he knew that no help would come this is the way the serpent king always thinks this is the way the serpent the devil thinks even today that the sins of the past prevent the salvation of the future if he can get us to focus on the sins of the past if he can get us to sit there in that place of my failures and my mistakes if I can wallow there Because Satan truly believes Those sins will eventually keep me From my salvation in the future That's at least how he wants you to think That's how he wants me to think You've messed it up too badly You you cannot go forward from where you were in the past And so he wants to keep us looking back And looking back And looking back And this year Or last year Or the one before it You did something I know you did You sinned in some way you failed miserably at some aspect of your life. Man, I did just last week. And Satan, the serpent king, would say, You need to think about that. You need to sit there in that place. Because you are a sinner. Satan loves to remind us of past sin. However, in Christ Jesus, the only past that determines my future is the cross of Calvary. That is the only path that I need look back to at all. Because it's at Calvary that all of the sin of my life, all of the failure, all that I have done wrong is wiped away and wiped clean. When I look back, rather than looking for this last year or last week or yesterday, I look beyond. I look to Calvary because that's the place of my forgiveness. And that cross stands. As a determined sign that we are a people in Jesus Christ who are saved. Jot that down and hold that thought. But the only path that determines my future is the cross. Back to the story. Saul Saul was a Benjaminite who was from Gebeah. That was his hometown. In fact, the very lineage of Saul's tribe of Benjamin is tied to the past of Jabesh Gilead. Remember, all the men of Jabesh Gilead are killed by Israel because they didn't help out in the battle. So the virgins of Jabesh Gilead are now brought together with the sons of Benjamin. And that's where Saul came from. Saul's tribe. Saul's heritage. Saul is connected to Jabesh Gilead. The serpent king, Nahash, miscalculated. Look at First Samuel 11, verse 4. The messengers came to Gibeah. of Saul and spoke these words in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now behold, Saul was coming in from the field behind the oxen. And he said, what is the matter with the people that they weep? so that they related to him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul mightily, and he heard these words, and he became very angry. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, (laughs) no doubt reminiscent of the concubine who was cut in pieces. He took these oxen now and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and after Samuel, so it shall be done to his oxen, Then the dread of the Lord fell on the people, and they came out as one man. In other words, Saul sent these pieces of oxen out and said, If you don't come and fight with me, you're dead meat. And he numbered them in Bethesda. And the sons of Israel were 300,000 and the men of Judah, 30,000. So 330,000 men show up there with Saul. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you say shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you will have deliverance. So the messengers went and told the men of Jabesh-Gilead and they were glad. And that's exactly what happened. By the time the sun was hot the next day, Saul flooded into the land. They, They marched All night long to get there, wiped out Nahash and the Ammonites, send them running, and save the men of Jabesh-Gilead. And we come to the end of Saul's life in 1 Samuel 31. And it's the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead who heard what the Philistines had done to Saul. The people of Jabesh Gilead, all the valiant men, they rose and walked all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth And they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. It's a story of mercy. It's a story of remembrance. And it's our story. We are Jabesh Gilead. You and I, we are the people of Jabesh Gilead. What do you mean? Just like this people, we remember a king that was fallen. To the people of Jabesh Gilead, Saul was not a failure. Saul was not a jerk. Saul was not an insane man. Saul was not a pursuer of David. To the people of Jabesh Gilead, Saul was a hero. Saul fought for them. Saul saved their lives. And they remembered their fallen king. And when he was dead, they went to show honor and dignity to this man who had saved them.
1: And it's us.
0: We are Jabesh Gilead. The only past, remember, the only past that determines my future is the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3 says, We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus listen I want you to see a comparison between Saul and Jesus our king the first king of Israel and the first true king of my life Jesus Christ the first thing to note is our king marched all night to save us Saul gathered the troops of Israel They marched all night long To get to Jabesh Gilead To save the people Jesus did the same for us From the Sanhedrin To Pilate To Herod Back to Pilate To the Praetorium Again to Pilate Through the streets of Jerusalem To the outskirts To Golgotha Where Jesus was hung on the cross Our king marched all night To save us Secondly our king Was not pinned to a wall Our king was pinned to a tree Our king was pinned up. Isaiah 22, verse 23. In a prophecy of this said, I will drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, listen to this, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. What was the load that was hanging on Jesus when he was pinned to the cross? It was our sin. And the load hanging on his body at that time, on his spirit, just as the prophecy says, it will break off and fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut off, our sin cut off. Because our king was pinned not to a wall, but to a tree. First 1 Peter 2, verse 23, While being reviled, Peter said, He did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. I'm going to ask you a question, and I will ask it again in a few moments. Do you really believe and the saving power of the cross of Jesus Christ or don't you? do you believe Peter's words when he says by his wounds we are healed do you believe Isaiah's words when he says by his stripes we are healed do you believe that true forgiveness comes from the death of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary do you buy that if you do and you're still wallowing in guilt there's a problem here We have misunderstood the power of the grace of God if we can look at the cross and say, yeah, but 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 my life, (laughs) my mistakes, no, they're they're just they're just too big for grace. I don't think so. Considering the comparison between again Saul and Jesus, our king was decapitated. Well, they cut off Saul's head and sent it throughout the territories. So with Jesus, our king was decapitated. Now you may be flipping to the gospel saying, wait a minute, I don't remember hearing about the decapitation of Jesus. It wasn't a physical decapitation, but a spiritual one. As Daniel said in Daniel 9.26, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Jesus said in Matthew 26.31, he said you will all fall away because of me this night for it is written i will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered paul says that jesus
1: the christ
0: is the head and the church is the body but at the crucifixion of jesus christ as his body as his disciples as his followers fled the head was cut off the head of the church the head of all those who would be saved cut off as they fled and they left him to his brutal death our king like Saul our king's bones remained intact for burial the body of Saul was burned so so the body of Jesus was burned oh again not literally but spiritually as he took on the full weight of the wrath of God the full fury of the fiery wrath of God on the cross Jesus took that And went through a burning that is incomprehensible. But his bones remained and were buried. His bones remained. There's an interesting prophecy that said not a single one of Jesus' bones would be broken in this brutality of the cross. And it would take something interesting... Something had to happen Because normally when you hung on a cross And you saw this in the story If you recall the story The two criminals This is what happened And this is what the Romans did After about two or three days They would come and check on the survivor on the cross Who was meant to hang there two or three days And if they were still alive And they wanted to be done with it Do you remember what they did? They broke the bones in their legs So that it could no longer push up and get air Well they came to break Jesus' bones When someone said, wait a minute, he's already dead. He's only been six hours up there. This doesn't happen. It's it's usually days. But Jesus, Jesus did determine the moment of his death when he looked up and said, it is finished. And so they didn't break his bones. And John writes in John 19.36, These things came to pass to fulfill the scripture. Not a bone of him shall be broken. You can find that, that prophetic scripture in two places. Psalm 34, verse 20. But in a more powerful place, I believe, Exodus chapter 12, verse 46. It says the Passover lamb, when you slay the Passover lamb, when you sacrifice the Passover lamb, do not break a single one of his bones. And in the same way Jesus our Passover none of his bones were broken though they remained intact for his burial like Saul's bones were buried and like Saul our king's bones were buried under a tree Saul was buried under that tamarisk tree, his bones, by the men who were honoring him. But our king's bones were also buried under a tree. John 19.41 says, Now in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. The tomb, the burial place of Jesus, is under a tree. That is, the tree of Calvary under the cross the closeness of this is fascinating when you stand there's a a, a small miniature little amphitheater that's set up and, and it's just above a bus depot but as you look across from the amphitheater standing there in Jerusalem you see the site that is called Golgotha the place of the skull it looks like a skull and it was on top of this That the cross was erected and Jesus was crucified. Following it right around that same hill, there is a garden that has been there for centuries. It's a place now located called the Garden Tomb. It was discovered because the man who discovered it was reading this verse that I just read to you, stating that right near the cross, on that same hill of Golgotha, there was a garden, and that's where the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea was. And that's where Jesus was buried, under that tree. Now you might say, Rick, I see the comparisons you're trying to draw here, but I'm not sure how you can compare Jesus to Saul when Saul was such a loser, when Saul was such a sinful man. You might note this. Our king was a sinful man. Our Jesus was a sinful man. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of of God in Him and again I ask you this question what do you think it means when it says He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf do you really think that some of the sin in your life got missed when Jesus actually became sin on the cross do you really think that your sin is just so unique that maybe there's something else that needs to be done I want you to understand this if we think that the cross is not sufficient to save then we deny its power entirely if we actually believe there's something we can do that there's something that can be added to or needs to be added to the sacrifice of Jesus we deny the power of the sacrifice of Jesus and the truth is Jesus Jesus is the most sinful man who ever lived on the face of the planet because he took all of our sin on himself. So we can sit in sorrowful guilt over the mess of our lives and we can fail to see this powerful truth that Jesus wore my sin. He took my mess. He carried my failure as his own. The humiliation at the end of the life of Saul, nothing compared to the humiliation of Jesus Christ. The tragedy of Saul's death as we look at it doesn't even find measure against the awesome tragedy of Jesus' death. And if we were to stop there, it would be even more tragic... I've told you before Thomas Jefferson wrote his own version of the Bible took out the miracles because he had trouble with that and at the end of the story of Jesus' life Jefferson wrote the following there they laid him in the sepulchre and they rolled a stone against the entrance and went away period end of story it's all done that's it which is the most tragic story ever told more tragic, empty, hopeless words have never been written You and I know the rest of the story As Paul Harvey would say And this is why I I chose As I was reading through and looking at Saul And thinking about how his life ended And thinking about this this moment of mercy On the part of Jabesh Gilead The show of affection The show of honor This is why we chose I chose to end the study this year this way That my king rescued me from the serpent Saul rescued Jabesh-Gilead from Nahash, the serpent king. Our king rescued us from the serpent, and I will not forget him. Like the men of Jabesh-Gilead, I will not forget the sacrifice. I will not forget the heroic deed. I will not forget what Jesus did. I can forget the past, however, because I remember my king. One thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus and in light of the coming promise and glories and achievements and successes and victories dang all of that stuff is going to fade in light of the coming and our hurts and our struggles and our pains and our sorrows and our sins will also fade in light of the coming of Jesus but hear this As we hope for the future, we are called to remember but one thing, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. We are called to only look back to one event, not the events of the previous year. Not the sorrows that you've faced and caused and brought about in your own life. We are called to look back to one event alone, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 36, or 23, Sorry, he said, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul adds this note. As often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I can forget about my past because I remember my King. And it's a great prescription for living in this new year. Remember the cross, run to the Christ. Remember the cross, run to the Christ. Did you say that with me? Remember the cross, run to the Christ. Jesus, we remember your blood at Calvary. We remember your body broken. We look back to this moment, this time in history as the moment that saved our lives. As the moment that healed us from our sins. As the moment, Lord, that took our wounds and washed them clean. As the moment that brought release and redemption and rejoicing to our hearts. And this morning, Father, we pause again to consider this moment. Lord, will you teach us? Please, Lord, teach us to constantly be a people who are vigilant to the future looking for your coming with only one thing on our memory and that is the cross of Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.